Acts 2, verses 32 to 42. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make thy enemies a stool for thy feet. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all that are afar off, every one whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other words and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Let's pray together. Oh, how we love thy law. It is our meditation all the day, sweeter than honey to our lips, yea, sweeter than the honeycomb to our mouths. Do a work on our spiritual taste buds for the next half hour, Lord, so that it is not tasteless to us. Awaken hearts that are tired because of a lost hour sleep. And may we exert all of our mind's attention and our heart's affection towards your holy word. And enable me, I pray, to speak of it with truth and with power by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. I would like to ask two questions and try to answer them with you this morning. The one is, what does it mean to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? And the second question is, how shall we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? And I want us to focus our attention in on the book of Acts rather than bringing in too much from outside that book. First, what does it mean to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? One of the most commonly used books in the contemporary charismatic renewal is the book entitled The Holy Spirit and You by Dennis and Rita Bennett. On page 64, they pose the question, What if I don't speak in tongues? Can I receive the Holy Spirit without speaking in tongues? And they answer with these words, quote, It comes with the package. Speaking in tongues is not the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it is what happens when and as you are baptized in the Spirit, and it becomes an important resource to help you continue, as Paul says, 
to keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. You don't have to speak in tongues in order to be saved. You don't have to speak in tongues in order to have the Holy Spirit in you. You don't have to speak in tongues to have times of feeling filled with the Holy Spirit, but if you want the free and full outpouring that is the baptism in the Holy Spirit, you must expect it to happen as in the Scripture. If you want to understand the New Testament, you need the same experience that all its writers had. And then on page 20, they sum up this classical two-stage Pentecostal teaching like this. The first experience of the Christian life, salvation, is the incoming of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ to give us new life, God's life, eternal life. The second experience is the receiving or making welcome of the Holy Spirit so that Jesus can cause him to pour out his life from our spirits to baptize our souls and bodies and then our world around with his refreshing and renewing power. And they call this two-step procedure the scriptural pattern of the doctrine of baptisms. Now, I have two things to say in response to this classic and moderate statement of Pentecostal teaching. One is negative and the other is positive. And I'm going to begin with the negative so that I can end on the positive since that's the way I mostly feel. The negative thing is that I doubt that they are right in saying that speaking in tongues is a necessary accompaniment of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, in order to show you why I doubt that, we need to walk with them through the book of Acts and see where they get their argument and then see if the observations that I have in response to that will outweigh that argument. Walk with me. Start at chapter 1, verse 5 of the book of Acts, written by Luke. Whenever I refer to what Luke says, it's what I mean he is communicating by the way he puts together this chronicle of his, Acts. In Acts chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus says to his disciples just before he's ascended into heaven, John baptized with water, but before many days you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then drop down to verse 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. So Jesus says that very soon there's going to be a baptism in the Holy Spirit accompanied by power. Well, that happens in Acts chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Suddenly, a sound came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributed and resting on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So there's the fulfillment of the promise of verse 5 of chapter 1. And it is accompanied by speaking in tongues. The next time that the word tongues occurs in the book of Acts is in chapter 10. Chapter 10 Verses 
44 through 46. The term tongues only occurs in the book of Acts three times or on three occasions. And this is the second one. While Peter was still saying this, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word. This is the house of Cornelius, the Gentiles to whom Peter had come to preach. The believers from among the circumcised, that's Jews, who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. So on the second instance here, again, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on a group of people is accompanied by speaking in tongues. The last place where the term tongues occurs is in chapter 19, verse 6. The situation here is that Paul has come to Ephesus. He has found some confused disciples of John the Baptist. Long after his death, there are still disciples of John the Baptist who don't know anything about the Holy Spirit firsthand. And Paul tells them about the Spirit, tells them that they should be baptized in the name of Jesus, not just in John's baptism. And in verse 5 says, On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now, there is one other place in the book of Acts that Pentecostals usually refer to to argue that tongues accompany the coming of the Holy Spirit, and that would be chapter 8. So if you want to turn back there, you can. I'm not going to read it in detail, but just tell you what happens there, since the word tongues doesn't occur here. Um, the people received the word of God, but the Holy Spirit did not fall on them, the text says. And so the apostles come down to them when they hear this, they lay hands on them and pray, and then it says they receive the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say they spoke in tongues, but the same words are used as in chapter 10, and it says that the people saw them receive the Holy Spirit, and therefore I think Pentecostals are probably right that here in chapter 8 as well, the coming of the Holy Spirit was accompanied by speaking in tongues. So the argument goes like this. Since on these four occasions, the falling of the Holy Spirit on a new group of people was accompanied by the speaking in tongues, therefore that should be seen as a pattern, a biblical norm, which should apply today so that after we receive the Lord, we should expect that, whether through the laying on of hands or simply through praying, that we would also speak in tongues as we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are five reasons why I am not as confident as the Bennetts are that the speaking in tongues must accompany the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Let me mention what those five reasons are. One, nowhere in the New Testament is it taught that the baptism in the Holy Spirit must be accompanied by the speaking in tongues. It seems to me risky to say that since it happened this way four times in the book of Acts, therefore we can know it is a normative expectation for the church for the rest of 
history. That's just too risky. I'm not that confident since there's no explicit teaching that the two have to go together. The second reason is that in chapter 1 of Acts, what Jesus does teach is that in verse 5, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and verse 8, you will receive power. And so I think the biblical sign of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is power. And to go beyond that and say that that power always manifests itself in tongues is to go beyond Scripture. Third, Acts records nine other conversion experiences that individuals or groups of people have, and none of these nine is described in terms of a two-step experience accompanied by tongues. Fourth, it could be, couldn't it, that special circumstances surrounded the situation in Jerusalem at Pentecost, in Samaria, in the house of Cornelius when the Gentiles first received the Spirit, and in Ephesus when these confused disciples received the Spirit. It could be that the special circumstances made it wise for God to pour out the Spirit and to grant the gift of tongues in those cases to communicate more clearly that the Holy Spirit was gathering to himself a body of believers made up of Jew and Samaritan and Greek or Gentile so that something made it especially appropriate at those times which may not or may be true at other times. And the fifth is this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 30, the Apostle Paul says, Not all speak in tongues. Now, the Pentecostal response to that argument is that Paul is not referring there to the general speaking in tongues that all Christians should seek in the baptism. He is speaking about a special gift of tongues used to edify people in worship. And the problem with that response is that the language used in verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 12 is speak in tongues different from the language that was used in chapter 12 earlier when the kinds of tongues or gift of tongues was referred to in worship. It's the same words used for the speaking in tongues elsewhere. And therefore, I'm slow, real slow and hesitant. In fact, I cannot with any authority say with the Pentecostals, you must speak in tongues or you haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit. It seems to me that Luke leaves wide open the possibility that the Holy Spirit might fall upon a person with revolutionizing power for overcoming sin and for witnessing and for worship and yet not with tongues. To say that this person is not the beneficiary of the promise of Jesus that they will be baptized in the Holy Spirit is to go beyond Scripture. What the Scripture does say is, you will be baptized in the Spirit and you shall receive power. And therefore, I think it's fair to say in Luke's terminology that a Christian without power is a Christian in need of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me turn to the positive thing I want to say about this moderate Pentecostal teaching. I call it moderate because there are Pentecostals who will deny salvation even 
to people who haven't spoken in tongues. But that's not at all the usual view among the contemporary charismatic renewal or in the traditional Pentecostal churches. The positive thing, the thing that we owe in our day to the charismatic renewal is their relentless stress upon the experiential reality of receiving the Spirit. It is a fact of experience. You know when it's happened, according to Pentecostals, and I believe they are right. For them, the Holy Spirit, that is, for the New Testament people, the Holy Spirit was a fact of experience. For many Christians today, it is a fact of doctrine. Surely the charismatic renewal has something to teach us here. In sacramental churches, the gift of the Holy Spirit is virtually equated with water baptism. In Protestant evangelicalism, it is virtually equated with a subconscious work of God by which we are grafted into the body of Christ and which we may not know we've experienced, but believe we've experienced because we're told to believe it. It's easy to imagine a spiritual counselor after a Billy Graham crusade, for example, in a counseling room, say to a new convert, now don't expect to notice any difference, but believe that you have received the Spirit. But you would never find something like that in the New Testament. That is a far cry from what we see. The Pentecostals are right to stress the experience of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. It is real. It leaves marks and evidences in the life. And I'm going to give you I can, four reasons why I believe that from the book of Acts. First, the term baptism in the Holy Spirit is significant. It implies immersion in the life of the Spirit. It all comes from that word of John the Baptist. I baptize you with water. There is one coming after me who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. What I do with water, he does with the Spirit. I put you under, he puts you under. You can't look at that image and think very long of the baptism in the Holy Spirit as merely a kind of sneaking quietly into your life while you're asleep and taking up inconspicuous residence in your heart while nothing changes. That may be the way it starts. But if it ends there, Jesus and Luke would say, you have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. The term itself implies an immersion in the life of the Spirit. Second reason that I think the experiential reality of the baptism of the Spirit should be stressed. In chapter 1 of Acts, verses 5 and 8, Jesus says, after not many days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8, he gives us what he thinks that will involve. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
and you shall be my witnesses. So here we have an experience of boldness, confidence, victory over sin, power in your life because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. A Christian without power is a Christian in need of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm aware that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul says that baptism in the Spirit is an act of God by which we become a part of the body of Christ at conversion so that we can say, in one sense, everybody who has been truly born of God has been baptized with the Holy Spirit. But we have done wrong in our evangelical interpretation of Paul and of Luke. We have done wrong in limiting Paul's understanding of the Holy Spirit baptism to this initial subconscious act of conversion. And we have done doubly wrong by taking Paul's use of it there in that limited way and forcing everything in Acts into that little mold and letting not Acts speak for itself. There is no reason, there is no reason to think that even for Paul, the baptism with the Holy Spirit was limited to the initial moment of conversion. That's just the beginning of it, perhaps. And the thing he's interested there in that verse. And for sure in the book of Acts, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is more than a subconscious divine act of regeneration. It is a conscious experience of power. Third reason that I think this. When you take your concordance, you should all have a concordance, which is a book that lists all the places where every word in the Bible is used. I opened it up yesterday and I looked up all the places where spirit is used in the book of Acts and read them. And what you will find if you do that is that never in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit a subconscious influence. It is always an experienced power that leaves effects in the life that you can know are there. It's not a mere silent influence. It's an experience. Believers experienced the baptism in the Holy Spirit. They didn't just believe it had happened because an apostle said so. And that's an indictment of our life in the Spirit and our theology of conversion. Fourth, the reason we should stress the experience of the baptism in the Spirit is that in Acts, the apostles teach that the giving of the gift of the Holy Spirit is consequent upon and subsequent to faith. Now, I am a convinced Calvinist, which means that I believe grace precedes and enables faith. We do not initiate our salvation. God initiates our salvation, enabling us to believe. But 
This regenerating work of the Spirit of God is not the limit of what Luke means by the baptism in the Holy Spirit. That's a grave mistake that many are making today, I think. And there is evidence for it. For example, Acts chapter 11, verses 15 to 17, if you want to look at it with me. Here, Peter is giving an account of what happened at the house of Cornelius. He reports that the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius, just as the disciples at Pentecost. And then he says in verse 15, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized in water, but you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed, or having believed, or literally with the NASB, after we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I should withstand God? So notice that the gift of the Holy Spirit is given, Peter said, to us on Pentecost because we were believing. We were believers. You know the disciples were believers a long time. But here, the belief is given as the cause and the preceding occasion of the outpouring. And so it was with those in Cornelius' house. So the baptism of the Spirit or the receiving of the gift of the Spirit cannot be the same work of God by His Spirit enabling faith. It is more than that. It is an extension of that. The baptism in the Spirit is an experience of the Spirit after faith to faith. And that's why I think Paul can say over in chapter 19, and you might want to look at this one as well, in Acts chapter 19, verse 2, the situation here, you remember, is that Paul meets in Ephesus some confused disciples of John the Baptist, and he uh, asks them a question which I think would blow the mind of most Protestant evangelicals. How would you answer this question? Verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? How would you answer that? I think most of us would answer it something like this. We'd scratch our heads and say, well, I've always been taught that you automatically receive the Holy Spirit when you believe. What, what, are, you, what are you asking that for? I mean, I don't understand the question. What does, this is a strange question, isn't it? If you've been taught that way. How could Paul ask that question? Why didn't he just say, do you believe? If he wanted to know they were believers or not. You believe in Jesus? And he said, when you believed, remember that? Did you receive the Spirit? If you can't talk like that, you can't talk like the apostles. I think the reason that Paul could ask that question is because receiving the Holy Spirit is a real experience given to faith. And it is so real that it is the best evidence for faith. And therefore, if you want to find out whether somebody has believed, 
ask them about their experience of the Holy Spirit. I don't think that's any different than what Paul taught in Romans 8.14 where he said, All who are led by the Holy Spirit are the sons of God. Being led in the power of the Holy Spirit is no small thing. And it's the criterion by which he determines who are the children of God. I sometimes fear that we have so redefined our conversion theology or redefined conversion in terms of human decisions and so removed from the event of conversion any necessity of the experience, known experience of God's Spirit that there are many who think they are saved today and are not. Because they simply have a head full of Christian ideas and have never tasted the power of the age to come. So you see, the real issue that Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement raises for us is not the issue of tongues. That's relatively unimportant. We'll be studying tonight and in some subsequent Sunday nights about the place of that. The real issue raised for us, pressed upon us by the charismatics is their relentless emphasis upon the truth that receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit is a real life-changing experience. Christianity is not an array of glorious ideas merely. Christianity is not the performance of sacramental modes nearly or merely. Christianity is the living experience of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe. And we could talk now for hours about what that experience is like. In fact, almost all I do in this pulpit is talk about what that experience is like. If you haven't caught on yet. We could talk for hours. Let me just mention two things that are mentioned in Acts as the, as the elements of that experience. One is a heart of praise. Acts chapter 10, verse 46. The disciples knew that the Holy Spirit had fallen upon them because they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling or magnifying God. Now, I've argued that the tongues may or may not be there. You can't press tongues to be a necessary accompaniment. But tongues are simply the overflow of a heart of praise, one way of releasing it. But the heart of praise is essential. If you don't have a heart that magnifies God for His greatness and in relation to whom everything else pales in comparison, you can't have any assurance that you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. The second thing is obedience. Turn to chapter 5 for a very interesting verse. Two verses. Chapter 5, first of all, verse 29. You remember the occasion where Peter, the apostles, got arrested by the Sadducees and told, don't you teach this Jesus anymore? And verse 29, Acts 5 they say, we must obey God rather than men. 
That's an interesting statement. We must obey. And then look down to verse 32. And notice the relationship between Peter's obedience and the Holy Spirit. We are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God gave to those who are obeying him. Gave past tense. Obey present ongoing tense. The evidence of whether or not you have been given the Holy Spirit is whether you are saying to Sadducees, we must obey God. It's inevitable that when the object of your heart's worship is God, and you magnify Him above every value in the world, you will obey Him. It cannot be otherwise. Disobedience is a devaluing of God. And if your heart is full of praise, your life will be full of obedience. So whether or not you speak in tongues, if you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit, you will have a new desire to magnify God in worship and you will have a powerful disposition to obey God in everyday life. And now let me close by pointing you back to chapter 2 and a four-step procedure that Peter gives us for how to receive the gift of the Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verses 38 to 41. Step number one, the word must be heard. There must be a sermon or a Bible or a witness from a friend. Somehow the word must come to you. And that has happened in chapter 2 with Peter's sermon. The second step in verse 39 is that God sovereignly must call you to himself effectually. Look at verse 39. The promise is to you and to your children, to all that are afar off, everyone to whom the Lord our God calls to him. When the gospel is preached, God calls his sheep effectually to himself. Nobody comes and is saved unless the Father draws him. The preached word is heard with conviction and power only where the effectual call of God goes forth. The third step after the call of God is that you respond by receiving the word. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. Those who received his word. What does that mean? When you receive the word of God into your life, it becomes a part of you and you trust in the Christ that it presents. Like I said last week, I can't think of any better way to sum up trust in Christ than this. You trust Him for His provision for forgiveness. You trust Him for the path of your life that you're going to follow. You trust Him for the power to give you the power or the enablement to go along that path. And you trust Him for the promises you need to have a hopeful future. And when you do that, you're obviously involved in repentance. Turning away. It says in verse 38, repent. That simply means turning away from all of your own self-wrought provisions and paths and powers and promises. 
And when you do that, when you turn to Jesus Christ and say to Him, I trust you for power, that is an opening of your heart to the Holy Spirit. And the promise of Peter here is that you will receive Him.